Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. This is a really good episode. I'm glad you've tuned in for this. My name is Tim Muirhead. I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at Azimuth Audio and follow the show at The Tone Benders on Twitter. Today we are talking with Joseph Freole, and he's the sound designer on the film that's in theaters right now called Kin. It's the new film from directors Jonathan and Josh Baker. There's a cool little history between this podcast and Joseph. A couple years ago when we went on our little field trip to New York City, I had set up an interview in person at Joseph's studio, and uh, I was really looking forward to it because Joseph is known for his modular synthesizer rig. If you go to ToneBendersPodcast.com, you can see some pictures of his modular synth setup, and it's pretty impressive. The sad thing was that when we were in New York City, uh, at the last minute, he had a session go long, and the interview never happened. And we've kind of played uh, phone tag back and forth since then. We finally got him on the podcast, which is something that we've been really looking forward to. And I think it was worth the wait because this is a really fun and uh, cool interview. Joseph has got a lot of really interesting ideas on how sound design should be done. Uh, He likes to dig into those modular synths and create stuff out of that world. A couple of days before we did the interview was the world premiere of the film, and Joseph actually went to L.A. to walk the red carpet, and uh, I got a picture of Joseph with the two directors. You can see it again on the webpage for this episode if you go to ToneMendersPodcast.com, and you can tell that the directors, obviously they share the same last name, they're minimal brothers, and it looks like there might be twins, so we started off with asking uh, if, the, if the directors were brothers or twins. They're brothers. Are they twins? Actually, they look like twins. They are twins. They're for, they yeah. look identical, but they're actually fraternal twins. The more you get to know them, you can see the subtle differences. Um, I, you know, sometimes they look, when they cut their hair the same and have the same facial hair, it's impossible to tell the difference. Like, I've known them for 12 years, 10 years. I, and sometimes I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, usually, you know, a lot of times you can tell. But anyway, yeah, we, we go back a long ways. We started working together uh, when they moved here from Australia. There were commercial directors there, and uh, they came here to sort of expand their work. And it just so happens that uh, one of them lived in my apartment complex. And I had met his wife, John's wife, uh, in the lobby. And we were just got to talking. I told her I was a sound designer. She's like, oh, yeah, to meet my husband. He's a director. And, uh, you know, long story short, we became great friends. Uh, both of our families, and then you know, met Josh and his wife, who's John's brother, and yeah, it just kind of snowballed. We you know, we started working together on commercials, and uh, uh, and through that, you know, we started doing the short films, and one of the short films got turned into Kin. You know, ten years later, it's been a pretty amazing process, especially for me. It's so satisfying because when I started working with them, they hadn't worked much with sound design. They, they were working mostly uh, with these amazing visual uh, uh, storytelling uh, technique with, with a lot of music backgrounds. So uh, what I had done when I originally met them, I was like, hey, you know, this one commercial you guys did, I mean, it needs sound design. Like, like I, I just saw it, it would be so cool. So they gave it to me and I just did it in this example, like, look, this is what it could be. And it was like, from that point on, we've done everything together. You know what I mean? So it's just been so much fun and very satisfying for me. It, it, something that's very, I don't know what the word is, not proud, but 
it's their their ability to talk about sound is so great and it's so uh, articulate and I think it's from the years of us working together like like they're they're actually speaking my language of sound when I when I articulate it um, so it, it just couldn't be more ideal in that in that way. So going from the commercial world, is this your first feature? It's not my first feature, uh, but it's the first like wide release feature that I was able to really dig into properly. I've done about, you know, 20 things on and off, uh, you know, supervising small uh, independent projects or my friends out here in L.A. would hire me to do sound design or sound effects on some of their, you know, uh, their features. But in New York, it's it's hard to get those opportunities going. And it was really, you know, John and Josh, their uh, amazing sensibility in terms of getting their short film out there and, and connecting the dots that gave me this opportunity, um, which I've been waiting for for so long. I mean, I, th this this genre of, of film is my favorite genre to work in, and uh, I've been really ready for that for a long time, so it was just ideal. I think mentioning the term genre for the film, Kin, is kind of an interesting thing because yeah. <laughs> it's a sci-fi film, but it's not really a sci-fi film. Like it, no. it's, it's kind of a character study that has some sci-fi elements. Yes. When you watch the trailer for the film, I think that they're almost misleading with the advertising for it because it, if you watch the trailer, I think you'd think that it's a major science fiction film, but it's actually... It's like a road uh, trip story. Yeah, it's a road story, a family story. It's about two brothers who have been separated kind of coming together and the grind that families can have on each other. But then there's this gun, this amazing gun that he pulls out of a duffel bag every once in a while and has some fun with. But And when that does, the picture takes a turn and it sings, but it's definitely not the sci-fi film I think that you are expecting when you go to sit in the theater. The, the whole like marketing thing of movies is an interesting topic. I mean, it's not my area of expertise, but, uh, but it is interesting that you know they find the demographics that they go after with these, tra these trailers and they have their reasons and, and that kind of thing and it gets people to theaters, which is great. But it is, it's a hard movie to market when you really break it down because there's a, it's not really a genre that you can... The closest genre I could say would be like a grounded sci-fi movie like District 9 or Looper and these kinds of movies. But even still, it's, it, there's so many genres that it's blending that it's almost hard to portray that in a short format trailer or advertisement. So, you know, they, they, you know it, it just they do what they do. But yeah, that's that's my favorite thing about this movie is that it crosses so many genres and there's so many opportunities, not only for the science fiction, but there's artistic opportunities that are more, uh, or f for, you know, sound, which are amazing. And also there were, uh, you know, just, just some beautiful moments of character uh, that, that were able to be dramatized, which were really fun. So it was ideal. Let's talk about how the film starts, because that's one of the funnest sound elements of the entire film, the first, like, minute and a half. Yeah. Uh, you can't give away a spoiler of what happens in the first minute and a half of a film, so we can talk about it. Okay. Um, there's an empty building, an abandoned building that's been torn apart, all the wires have been pulled out of it for the most part already. That's what you see when you're watching the film. Uh, but there's a battle happening in it. But visually, we never really get to see the battle. We see kind of a light glows in the distance and stuff, but mostly what we're looking at are like puddles with the water uh, rippling from the, th the thunderous blows. But the entire story of the first minute and a half, which sets up the entire film, is all on you. Yeah. Like, how did that feel when you got the first cut of it and there's just nothing there and you just had a blank slate for you to tackle?
I was so excited, man. I can't even tell you. And, and how that came about, that, that scene originally wasn't in the original cut of the movie. That was something they decided to go and shoot after the fact and incorporate to sort of give you a, a mysterious uh, idea of where this technology, where these people, where the gun is from, to explain it a little better, but still be mysterious. And, and that just goes, you know, it's just the relationship I have with those guys. We've done so many short films with no budget <clears throat> where they would shoot something and say, oh, we got to give this, we'll do, give this to Joe and he'll do something awesome with it. And uh, it was the same thing with this movie, just on a much bigger scale. They're like, because of our relationship, they think of me and they think of sound. They're like, oh, you know what we should do is just, just shoot these almost like plates of this warehouse and have the battle be happening off camera. And it, and it creates that mystery. Uh, so I was so excited when I, when I got that opportunity to uh, to do that because it is like just storytelling and uh, with sound and it's also you know it's a key moment of the film and and, uh, and, it, and it's rare to have that where where you have a film where something has bold sound that's not attached to a visual like that so it was great and without huge music as well like the sound is telling that story entirely yeah yeah so so it was a great opportunity. So how did that work? Did you give them the sound design and then they put in the distant glows and uh, rumbles and such in post? Or A lot of the stuff was practical. Like uh, John and Josh, they had these speak giant speakers, you know, they would play like subwoofer, uh, like low frequency tones in these speakers to, to uh, move the water, you know, so uh, during those, those things that you mentioned where there's like water rippling from the, uh, the you know, the sounds that are happening around you. So that was practical. So there was some elements that were practical. But then, I, you know, I would just go in and, and uh, automatically just start cutting stuff where I felt like it would sound right. And then um, the visual effects would sometimes follow me a lot of the time. And then a lot of time I, I would follow them depending on what we were doing. And because, you know, John and Josh were directing us at the same time, uh, partially. And then partially I would sometimes find a cool idea that they would then send to visual effects and have them follow my lead on that too. So it was really, really great. Yeah, that sounds fun. I can't, can't even imagine the excitement and fear of getting those first shots for that opening, knowing that it was all on your shoulders to <laughs> like draw everybody into the film. Admittedly, if I didn't, if I wasn't such good friends with these guys, I would have been a little bit scared. I would have been like, oh gosh. But, but you know, I was just, because of our relationship, I mean, you know, in any, in any way, it would still, you're scared, but it's also really fun because it's a great opportunity so yeah for this film uh correct me if i'm wrong but you worked on all the sci-fi elements as well as the just general like did you d cut the motorcycles or was that somebody else well i originally i was on this movie for about a year and i i had cut so so much of it on my own um and i had you know help was coming on the way you know for the last couple of months i had a uh, two sound editors uh Dave Rose and Paul German, uh, amazing sound editors uh, from Toronto, were, you know, were going to lined up to help me out. But along the way, I wound up cutting a lot of the terrestrial guns and, you know, any anything story oriented or drama. Anywhere I can have the, the drama, the bakers wanted me to handle. So, you know, sometimes it was footsteps. Sometimes it was, you know, uh, all the shootouts and uh, and uh, the cars and you know, just general layers that were helping the pace of the story um but then you know paul and dave came on and uh did an amazing job with building out the backgrounds that i had started dave actually um got recorded the uh ducatis and we had a great um 
just lucked out with that because he had you know reached out to uh, this Ducati forum says hey does anybody have this particular model and uh, and somebody responded and they did and they had a modified exhaust which was super helpful um, I also had the idea is to record the on instead of recording onboards because it's very difficult recording onboards on motorcycles because of all the wind so uh, what we did is got a, a, a dynamometer which is basically uh, a portable dynamometer. And now what that is, is like you park your motorcycle or, or a car on this thing and you lock down the front tires and you can rev the engine and race the engine as much as you want because the back tire is spinning on a wheel. And traditionally this thing is designed so the wheel that the tire is spinning on is connected to all this computer instrumentation to measure the, uh, the engine performance but it's just a great thing to use when you're recording a motorcycle or a car because you can get the car or motorcycle to be stationary and you can rev the crap out of it and cycle through the gears and, and everything and get you know super clean recordings. It was amazing that we were able to do that and, uh, and get those unique bike sounds. Let's talk about the motorcycles and the people who are riding them in the film. For 98% of the film, you don't know who they are. There's people chasing them. They could be from the future. They could be aliens. They could be just government operatives with special technology. You don't know, but it's not really important. But they have this technology and this language. Do you want to get into the nitty-gritty about how you actually did that to create this kind of jitterish language? Uh, yeah, we record long uh, passages of dialogue of my wife and I talking about our cats and random stuff. So I had like two tonal starting points of like a female and male uh, voice. And then I would use uh, software, like something called a symbolic sound chema system, which is a really powerful sound processing. It's a separate hardware system that lays an operating system on top of your current operating system that's all sound-based. So it's like this whole world of sound that you can create. And I've had it for 10 years, and I swear I've just scratched the surface with this. This thing is phenomenal. Yeah, so I used uh, the, these, uh, like a granular chopper uh, and a, uh, a couple other different modules that when I play the sound, it would just skip around randomly and just garble up all this dialogue. And uh, then I would take that and apply a filter and uh, you know, a cool um, like sort of stutter delay on them to sort of give it this like mechanical quality and then um, put that into sound minor. Basically what I did was um, for each scene that they were talking, I, I wanted it almost to sound like a language, like a Latin based language. Um, so it's almost like, let's say someone's speaking Spanish or Italian, like when they're expressing themselves, like if you, and you don't speak those languages, you kind of understand what they're getting at, but you know, you don't understand any of the words, but you're like, ah, I kind of get it. And that was my intent with, with, with their communication. Um, and so I would go through and edit, you know, look for little pieces and put each little piece together. Uh, for each of their, you know, communications and to sort of create a, a conversation between them, between the two that was ominous, but both like intriguing and mysterious. And what's really fun about it is that when we started in the script, they never were supposed to have dialogue. It was always supposed to be like a, a breathing, uh, an ominous, like like breathing, which we, I also did. Um, but that was supposed to be like their, 
you know, their presence. But the first scene I got was in the Ducati dealership when they're getting the motorcycles and they just looked at each other a certain way. And I was like, hey, guys, you know what? I think I want to try something here where, where we make some vocalizations for these characters. I think it could be really cool because they do look like they're communicating. Even when they, you know, it was cool when they were just breathing uh, and looking at each other, but I thought they could add another dimension to their, their mystery if we created this dialogue. So... I just went through this whole process, and it's something I've always really wanted to do, and I've, I've, I've just always loved speech synthesis uh, and all sorts of uh, ways of manipulation and creating speech. I mean, there's some really crazy academic software out there that I've played with, like uh, something called Prat, which is P-R-A-A-T, which uh, they use to create the voice of Siri by you know recording all these dialogue from um, you know the, the voice actress and then cataloging all the phonemes, which is then later uh, computer generation is accessing these phonemes from a database. So there's also such the things you can do that are super unique and interesting, but I wanted to create my own process and uh, so it was a great opportunity for that. And I, it really worked out. When I sent it, when I originally sent it to them, they were like, I think Mark was like, wow, Mark Data Editor is like, that's really sci-fi. And I think they were really hesitant. And I was like, no, this is sci-fi part of the movie, man. You know what I mean? So we were like, John and Joss loved it. And we just, we went with it. <laughs> That's really awesome that you were able to add something completely new. Yeah, there was, you know, there was a couple, I'm so proud of a couple things I was able to do. And, and you know, I, I could say it was, you know, my idea, but it's really still a testament to John and Josh's directing ability because they let people contribute and collaborate and they listen to people's ideas and they often, uh, you know, got, you know, guide those new ideas and, and, and are accepting of them. And it was just such a great process because the whole team was, there was like no egos between us. It was all just kids in the candy store. Like another one was, uh, they were tightening up the, the whole film for a screening that they were having. So I had a, like a week that was kind of slow and I, you know, I, I was anticipating a bunch of visual effects so I, I couldn't really do too much until I saw that stuff. So I'm just sitting there looking at the picture and I had this idea that when Eli is in the warehouse looking for what he saw when he originally discovered what was in the warehouse, you know, he's just walking around in there and there's some cool ominous winds happening. And, you know, he goes down the shaft to, you know, discover ultimately what he's going to find is the weapon. But so I had this idea of like, well, well, using a sort of language of sound almost that was based on Bluetooth technology and mobile devices that we're all familiar with as an audience that we can follow uh, the sonic cue of in a storytelling method. So what I did was make these like series of beeps and notifications when Eli was near the weapon, it was hauling him down the shaft. And as he became closer to the weapon, the, the sounds would change and accelerate. And then when, so, so it's like signifying that you're getting closer to something, almost like a sonar or a radar type of thing. And when he, he picks the gun up, and then it's almost like a, a nice greeting when he opens it. layer to the idea that it was like an artificial intelligence that uh, understood 
the technology from both the cleaners uh, or, or all the technology in the film understood who their user was and they were communicating with it through an artificial intelligence that was a little bit beyond our current technology. So, uh, so yeah, like when Eli had the weapon, it had a different sonic sensibility in its character throughout the film as to when anyone else were, was using it, it would behave and sound differently. I just want to see it, all right? Man, somebody's got to be looking for this thing. Ah, shit. What happened? It just closed up. Maybe it doesn't like you. You try it. I'm not touching that thing. Make it work. Oh, it likes you just fine, huh? I didn't even know what it can do until back then. Yeah, but you had a pretty good idea, didn't you? And that was something I was really proud to uh, contribute to the movie, for sure. Now that you brought up the gun, I think that's kind of sound-wise the main event for this film. It's really cool in that the gun is always communicating. Even when uh, it's not being fired, it's humming, it's glitching, it's beeping. It has a personality. How do you give a gun a personality? That's quite a task that you took on there. Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, it, it was funny too, because once I started it, once I had that idea and, I, and you know, John and Josh loved it, like the studio and everyone was like, oh, this is great. You've got to make it do more and more and more. And I'm like, wow, I mean, because there's a fine line, you know, you don't want to give too much away. You don't, you don't want it to all of a sudden become R2-D2 and it becomes silly. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, so, so it's still like, a, it's still a cold, inanimate object that's communicating with you. But, you know, it's also very important at the same time for the weapon to sound dangerous and feel dangerous because, you know, it's a 14-year-old kid who's, who's using it and you want that, that drama and you want that realism that you would feel like if a kid had a, an alien weapon, like how, you'd be scared, you know what I mean? And it's about making it sound dangerous, but warm at the same time and connected to Eli. But it, so there was a, there was a fine balance that I had to walk throughout the whole thing without, you know, giving too much away or being cheesy or something. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's definitely not something that you're kind of aware of the first time you're watching it. The the kind of personality of the gun. It's something that develops as the film goes on that you start realizing, oh, okay. When the kid is holding the gun, if he doesn't move anything on the gun, but he moves his body, so the gun just moves through space, the, the hum has a pitch change. Now, it doesn't sound anything like a lightsaber, but that's kind of the way it works to give people an idea of what I mean. Like, it, if someone moves a lightsaber, there's a pitch shift that goes on with it, or a Doppler, I guess. How did you uh, go about 
creating those movements. The whole thing is all the technology in the film is based on magnetism, right? So I'm imagining the mechanics of the weapon and how it's working within itself. Like there's like maybe floating magnets in there. So when you do move it, it has like a, maybe it, it charges by, by moving, you know, and uh, the movements accelerate some kind of engine or something. I just wanted the gun to have a lot of character and, and have a lot of mystery and intrigue, you know, through all of its use, you know, so if you're moving it, it has a certain sound to it. And interestingly, it was a sound um, that I had created with a, a software synthesizer called MetaSynth. In the original file that I had scanned to make that sound, I did in 1999. This is the perfect sound. This is exactly what I'm looking for because I remembered it. It was such a cool sound. So I made a whole bunch of variations in medicine for, for that and then cut them to picture later. But it was just like, I've been waiting to use that sound for like 20 years. <laughs> Such a cool sound. When did you wrap up this film? Last day of the final mix was August, my birthday of last year. So it was August 25th of 17. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but then we had a couple other things we had to go in because there was a couple of... Uh, uh, you know, intro card that they added for, you know, the producers and studios. So we had an opportunity to go in for a couple of days and, you know, do sound for that. And then a couple of fixes we had to do uh, for dialogue or ADR that came in way later. And then, uh, then, you know, just recently we did the DTSX mix. So we had a couple of opportunities that we were able to go back in and do some fun things which was great. So let's go back to uh, the gun and the, the kind of UI effects that you did for it. Where did you come up with all the beeps and such? The majority of all that stuff I, I made on my Eurorec modular synthesizer, and it was uh, generally in like wavetable oscillators or um, digital FM modules that I would then like run through high-pass filters and have uh, the control from both... Uh, a sort of keyboard-like modules called pressure points made by Make Noise, and then I had the SSF Ultra Random module, uh, so it would control the different uh, randomly control pitch. But I would open and close the VCA with a uh, with a keyboard, so every time I touch it, it'd be a different pitch, and it would be like a, um, a stepped pitch, so it wouldn't be smooth. It'd be like you know, so I would get the right sounds and then record long uh, bits of those. Um, we then use different oscillators for different parts of the technology, different parts of the gun. And um, I also use a lot of uh, EMF recordings, like uh, with the, um, the LOM audio uh, electros. I can't even pronounce that, electroslush. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple of different versions of those, and I would just record tons of uh, electro, you know, EMF recordings. And, um, and uh, you know, layer those in and cut those together with the, with the Eurorack stuff to make the sort of language of the scope and all the sort of beeps and things like that. And it's just great stuff because it gives you to, to work with because it gives you unique material. I mean, you, you kind of can't come up with something. It's like harder to copy somebody or come up with something similar than it is to make something unique, you know, because you have so much control and so much variation right there. It's my go-to for like generating electronic sound for sure. And then you use something else uh, that I read about in an article to record like telephone poles. You're thinking of the LAM uh, Prizor, which is a uh, uh, yeah low frequency radio band, which is another LAM microphone, but it basically records. Uh, it's like a wider bandwidth version of the electro sluice or whatever you call it. Um, so yeah, that was really cool because I discovered this whole world of electricity underneath the streets of New York City. 
which is really creepy, but there's all these electrical <laughs> lines under there. And like when you're listening to him, you're like, oh my God, there's like, this isn't the ground. This is like, you know, <laughs> there's like a whole world of electricity under there. And it was some really interesting textures that I was able to capture and include in the, uh, for a lot of the sounds of the gun. Let's talk about the Eurorack stuff for a second. You have a history of that because not only do you do sound for films, you, you also have a career as a musician as well, correct? Yep, that's correct, yep. Over the past 20 years, I have about uh, six or seven albums out under the alias uh, Daytachi, which is a sort of experimental music that I've always loved and uh, been able to, thankfully, like release a bunch of music. And uh, in 2016, I released an album that I made entirely out of performances on this machine, this Eurorack modular synthesizer. And um, it was interesting because I had originally purchased the synthesizer for creating telemetry, data readouts, and that kind of thing back in 2010 or 2011. So it was like a, a purchase for sound design. And at that point, I hadn't made music in like five years. I was so focused on my sound design work. And then as the years went on, I was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, I think I can make music on this machine because I, I was just so obsessed with it and constantly just working with it and finding new worlds of sound that I could create. And it, it, I just sort of snowballed into me making music with it and being able to make entire pieces of music on it, which was like the most fun challenge because you have this machine, this inanimate machine, and when you can make a full piece of music on it and just sit back and watch it play it, it was just like the most, it's, it is an, an amazing experience. It's, it is almost like you're a creative director of this artificial intelligence that's uh, expressing this emotion and it, it's just it's a really uh, addictive process so yeah I released a record um, last year or no 2016 I have another one coming out next year it, making the music uh, on that completely fuels the sound design techniques and vice versa because you're thinking and looking at this thing differently and what you know what you pull out of it can influence your process in, in either one so it's been great your approach in terms of sound design with the Eurorack is you're not doing things to sync, right? You're making palettes and then going in and editing that later. Is that how you go about it? Correct, yeah. That, that, it's just more efficient for me that way. And yeah. you, I love performing to picture. There are a few sounds that I was able to perform to picture uh, because of you know just the nature of like how, how they were constructed on the synthesizer, which is a lot of fun. But just being able to be tactile and performing a sound, you, you can surprise yourself uh, with, with the results a little bit more than if you were just programming it or something because it, you know there, there's just more variation and you can be more expressive. Um, and I use, I use this module, the, the ADAC 302 Nunchuck controller, which is a Wii Nunchuck, nunchuck that has uh, you know eight CV outs and eight, two gate outs. So I was able to you know connect it to a couple of different VCAs on the modular to open and close the sound and, and, and shape the envelope, but then also trigger and modulate a bunch of different oscillators, filters, and effects simultaneously. And, and, and you know I was able to like you know there's an accelerometer as well as a joystick, so you're able to really control the sound with with movement. And then it's just really helpful when you want something more aggressive or something more smooth. You can really just, you know, articulate that almost like a conductor with your hands. Connected to a giant analog <laughs> synthesizer. <laughs> yeah. It's something about Eurorack. It happens to everybody, but it's just there's so much cool stuff and you just want to try it. And then it's like, you know, it's like a puzzle where you where you have one thing and you think about using it with another thing. And and for me, it's like mine is really big. It's honestly because of my work. It's, uh, you know, I can make music on a very small system. 
but it, it, you know, for sound design work, you don't know what you're getting into, you know, and you need the variation. I think I have like 35 or 45 oscillators, you know, because there's subtleties to them that lend themselves better to certain processes, processes better than others, you know. Sometimes you think like, oh, this wave, wave table oscillator with this smooth, uh, you know, morphing aspect is going to be the perfect sound for this. And you plug it in and you try it and you're like, nope, that's not it. It's it's this other one that has like this 8-bit uh, wave table in it that's working much better. And, you know, so, so, you know, it's just having those... You can do it where you try it and then buy another, say it doesn't work and buy another one. But you know what, by the end of that, making that sound is going to take you a really long time. So I, I, I tend to preemptively just, you know, get into modules and buy modules that are appealing to me and, and the sounds that I like. So I have that database in my mind to go to when I'm creating a sound. Let's talk about the last element of the gun that we haven't, well, there's probably many elements of the gun that we haven't talked about, but the actual blast, the firing of it. Yeah, that was really fun. And you know, that's an extension, I mean, of, uh, of the short film from Bagman. I mean, I had funnily enough recorded these uh, cannons at, a, I think it was a civil war or a, Revolutionary War, it was some kind of reenactment. I was down visiting my mom in Florida and it was at St. Augustine in Florida where they were shooting off these cannons into the water and I had my recorder with me and it was like the greatest, like I just love black powder weapons, like how they sound. And that was like the, the basis of it uh, in the short. And then there was that, the electronic elements and then the, the sort of rippling thunder, how it was rolling through the hills. And those three basic components I kept in the feature, but what I did was I used the same sounds, but I took those sounds, put them on the modular. Well, I, took, I, I kept, I used the same organic sounds. So I took the black powder uh, cannon blast into a sampler module called a Qubit Wave by Qubit Electronics and a couple of different variations of it because it has uh, four sample players within one module. So I was able to pitch them differently and, um, and then the electronic sounds were oscillators being processed through different effects processors. And then there was two SSF entity kick drum modules, which I had a hand in designing, uh, which was pretty fun. Like I did a lot of beta testing for those. So I knew just know them inside and out. So I had two different pitches of, of kick drums and uh, the thunder and uh, also these electronic sounds that were all being processed at the same time into a stereo output. And I was controlling it with that, the Wii nunchuck controller. So I was being able to do these really cool blasts. Come on, man. Don't be shy now. You got this. Whoa! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! That thing is a cannon! <laughs> it's insane. And, uh, and then I then took that later, uh, took those sounds, uh, for uh, different modes of the weapon, you know, when the, 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 the weapon shifts modes in part of the movie, I then ran it through Reactor. So I, like, resampled my own sounds to make sweeteners for the, the different modes of the gun. You're in New York. A lot of the post and the mix was being done in Toronto. And then the score was being done by the one of my favorite bands, Mogwai, who are in Scotland. I assume they, that's where they did the work from. That's where they are from. Uh, how did the coordinating of all that take place? And was that easy or was that a difficult task unto itself? No, you know what? It was really easy. I think in, in t today's world, I, I mean, this was a real good testament to that because, you know, I worked with John and Josh for about a year on this movie and they were in L.A. and I was in New York and we never were in the same room. 
not, I mean, it's not ideal. You know, I mean, I, I, w- I would love to be in the same room with them because it's fun and, you know, more different ideas and things come, come out differently when you're together. But, you know, all of us being super separated was not a non-issue. You know, I mean, I, th- I feel like I texted with John and Josh so much. I wish I kept that stream of texts, but it was so much fun because I, I would send them little videos of, of like sounds I was making and stuff. And they're like, oh, that's dope. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know, and, and it's just a modern, a more modern workflow. I really don't feel like you need to be in the same room anymore. I haven't felt like that for a long time. And I feel like people are starting to catch on to that, that it, it totally doesn't matter. Uh, it was just as effective. And you know what? And, and what was fun, too, I mean, I have a history with Mogwai, who absolutely killed this score. It was my thing I listened to all summer. I, but, but I have a history with them. They had remixed uh, a track of mine for my second album release back in 1998. It was 1998 or 2001 or something. In all fairness, I think their version of my track was better than mine. So I was like, damn it. But it was so cool. <laughs> and I was so flattered that they did it. And it was so cool to reconnect with them on this project. I'm like, you guys, it's me. You know what I mean? I haven't talked to you in so long. And it was awesome to reconnect with them. And, uh, you know, they're so talented and amazing. I, you know, I had some real concerns about um, their music because uh, I had already established the sound of the gun. And the main hum of the weapon I had done on a modular synth using, you know, an oscillator that it was just not, I didn't think to tune it. You know, I just tuned it by ear. I was like, well, this is the sound. This is the key that I want. It's warm, but it's present. So I just went with it, which who the heck knows what key it is. But phenomenally, Magua, and I was worried that they were going to have to work around that and it was going to be, they're going to tune all their instruments weird and it was going to be difficult. But just, they didn't even, it was no thing for them. They, they even worked not only wrote music that works in the same key as the weapon, but even created the timing of some of their cues off of the beeps of that I created, which were also random. They were just by ear. <laughs> there was no metronome. I was just like, that sounds cool. And then they took that and made a track out of it, you know, off of it. And, and that was the thing we talked about was like, well, it'd be, I personally love uh, tracks that are melding in terms of their, uh, their, 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 their storytelling and their, uh, with sound and music, you know what I mean, where, where there's elements that, that you can't tell what's coming from what, and it doesn't really matter because it's just telling one story. And I, they, they just took that, you know, and, and, and did an amazing job. And, and also to speak to what was amazing about this project is I didn't know anyone in Toronto. I didn't know, you know, like who my sound editors were going to be or who the mixers, you know, I just didn't know. I, people I know are in New York and L.A. So Gregor Hutchinson, our post-supervisor, put together this, team it was absolutely amazing it's like not only were they phenomenal talents like david mccullum my my co-supervisor who he saved so much of this movie with the, the what he was able to do with the dialogue it completely blew my mind like the eulogy scene with james james franco taylor uh, uh his character taylor when when, he, when you know he's speaking the eulogy with the fire going on i mean you know I was sure that was going to have to be ADR. I spent like all this time with with Isotope RX, and I, you know that's not dialogue's not my thing. But you know, before before David came on, I was like, oh, I can't. I don't think this is going to work. So I said, David, can I borrow you for a minute, and you can check this out. And I swear to you, like 15 minutes later, he sent it back. Not only did it did it he get the fire out of the dialogue, but it was warm and it was present. I was like, I was so excited and happy to have David. I was like, oh, I can't wait till he was full time on the movie. But he really saved that scene, man. Did it for me. If I had known how you were gonna end up, would have kept this walkman on me every day of my life.
monster, Dutchie. And I'll love you forever, Flood. We have Frank Marone, Dialogue and Music Mixer. Frank Marone, Brad Zorn, Effects Mixer. Paul and Dave, uh, Paul German and Dave Rose, uh, sound editors. And, um, and I believe Kristen Hunter also worked on with David on the dialogue. And, you know, it was just an amazing team, not only in talent, but also in spirit. Like, we all became really good friends, and we're, we're all, like, you know, we bonded through that experience. So it's been super awesome, and I, I can't wait to be working with those guys again. Wow. That's some glowing praise. That's awesome. Uh, the one thing with the music and the sound effects that I thought really worked well together is there was a couple scenes where the music was humming along with the sound design of the gun. Well, as a regular viewer, they wouldn't have thought about this at all. But as someone who knows they're about to interview the sound designer of the film, uh, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, that's a cool texture for the gun. And then the scene cuts, and that texture keeps going, and it was part of the music. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was something that, yeah, again, like we were, that we had talked about with Mogwai, and they just did a brilliant job at adding those textures that would then evolve. And, and so you would pre-lap a scene with, with music that would turn into the gun or vice versa. And then, you know, would, the music would continue. And, you know, the, the thing about Mogwai that's really great, I mean, while they're using traditional uh, instrumentation, their, their ability to uh, create these worlds of sound with the, the, uh, the design of their sounds within their music is, is really, really organic and beautiful and, and has such an emotional quality to it that I think it was a pretty natural thing for them to do was to work off of that stuff in the end. So it was super cool for me just to like, I remember getting to the mix. I haven't even heard any of the music. I was a little nervous. I was like, you know, you get to a mix. Like, you know, they were still, they were literally working to the last minute. And, I, and I've heard some of the cues. We had a lot of tent music in there. And, you know, I knew how... The sounds were working generally with the temp music, but I, I really didn't know what we were going to get into. And then, so, you know, you get into the, the premix, and it's like, oh, my God, man, this is working amazing. And it just really was phenomenal. And Frank Marone, he did such a great job of mixing their stems and, and you know, everything was, there was no, like, corrective stuff. It was more just, like, how to mix it to sound great. And, um, uh, yeah, no, it, it was just, it was a really cool experience, and it just really worked out. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking to you, and I'm glad after a couple years of trying, we finally got to hook up and get you on the podcast. Me too, Tim. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Cool. Okay, we'll talk soon, okay? All right, sounds good. Let him go. Let him go, and we'll leave. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonebenderspodcast.com.